Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss every year of film history in order, starting in 1895, the dawn of cinema. Uh, And this week is 1932. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist. And joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Cobell. I'm a filmmaker. And uh, yeah, this is... uh... And we are podcasters. (laughs) God, gotta come up with something better than that. It's a joke that only works once and then we do it every every time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, if you are uh, listening to this on a podcast, we can let you know that you can watch it on YouTube and you can get some a little extra bonus stuff in the video. Bonus uh, clips, some, some, some behind the scenes pictures, that kind of thing. Whatever copyright, whatever clips the copyright pigs will let us will, yeah. will let us use <laughs> and uh and some posters and that kind of thing. And if you're watching on YouTube, you know, you can just uh, relax, do some dishes, and, and listen to it as a podcast if you like as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and hear about some movie history. Uh, so, Glenn, yeah, how's it going? How are you doing? Uh, fine. I mean, still looking for proper work. But um, as you know, I shot a, a, a silent short film. Yes. Park a few weeks ago, so that was yeah. fun. Finishing up work on that, so keep an eye out either online or, or in film festivals. Don't know where that's going yet, but hopefully somewhere. We'll keep you posted on it. We keep you posted on every Glenn project, and <laughs> and we 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 keep we keep you posted on everything that's bringing me nightmares, like the Denver Film Festival, <laughs> uh, which starts in five days. Uh, oh so I don't I don't know how I am. Uh, doing this right now but this is this is effectively my last day off for like three weeks damn but it's all worth it for you podcast audience the the precious listener (sighs) my precious so this is 1933 we're talking about this is early 32 sorry 32 jumping the gun a little bit i'm already ready for next week's uh, for, (laughs) for the next episode this is 1932 which is Early sound era, pre-code era. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting to see some edgy stuff in this. We're getting to see some some zany stuff. Uh, but let's let's give ourselves a little bit of context for uh, the the environment of, of these movies that uh, in, in which they are coming out. Uh, so, Glenn, why don't you take it away with the news of 1933? Two, what? God. <laughs> News of the year, 1932. In the face of brutal Japanese occupation, Korean independence activist Lee Bong Chang lobs a grenade at Emperor Hirohito. The attempt failed, but the Chinese Nationalist Party said they'd wished it didn't. Japan completes its invasion and annexation of Manchuria, declaring it Manchukuo, and installing a puppet emperor. Wanted information as to the whereabouts of Charles Lindbergh Jr., Baby Lindbergh has been kidnapped from his crib, and his famed aviator parents receive a ransom note. Finland's prohibition ends, turning the booze trade into a state operation. Government Alco stores are the only place to buy wine, liquor, and beer above 5.5%. Art dealer Otto Wacker is put on trial for selling dozens of fake Van Gogh paintings. King Faisal of Iraq orders the remains of two companions of the Prophet Muhammad exhumed and relocated after a dream that their graves are in danger. Sir James Chadwick discovers the neutron. Months later, Carl D. Anderson discovers the positron. 
Amelia Earhart becomes the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. When she lands in a field in Ireland, a farmer asked, Had you flown far? Our girl Amelia said, From America. A bloodless coup d'etat establishes the constitutional kingdom of Siam. The Dow Jones reaches its all-time lowest point at $41.22. Unemployment in the U.S. reaches 33%. Schnell, Schnell, the first autobahn is open. The Kennedy-Thorndike experiment develops special relativity by proving the link between time and motion. Franklin Delano Roosevelt defeats Herbert Hoover in a landslide. Australia declares war on emus who destroy untold numbers of crops. The emus are declared the victor. George Eastman, founder of Kodak, commits suicide in Rochester, New York. The first Venice Film Festival is held, becoming the first major film festival, and longest still running. Rene Clare's film, A New De Liberté, is awarded most amusing. And that's the news. It probably should be noted that the first Venice Film Festival was started by fascist Italy. Yes. The, which then um, led to the, uh, <laughs> was it Cannes Film Festival? Was uh, invented in order to be a non-fascist film festival. Oh, I did not know that. Um, yeah. I mean... I was reading into it a little bit when I was writing the news and I saw that I don't know if they gave this award out the first year. It seems like they didn't. But uh, for the first 10 years or so of the Venice Film Festival, people were receiving the Mussolini Award. (laughs) So, uh, uh, yeah, good on Cannes for that, at least. Yeah. Anti-fascist Cannes. Yeah. They got a real can-do attitude. Ah! Okay. Uh, Let's move on. (laughs) We have got... uh, uh, We were just going to watch features for this episode, but last second we were like, oh my god. The first Technicolor short film? Short... uh, The first first three-strip Technicolor animated short film and the first animated short best picture winner. Best short. Yeah. Best animated short. I can't talk today. Let's go into one week one reel and talk about tree people. <laughs> <laughs> our our one short uh, for this episode is Flowers and Trees, mm-hmm. a uh, a Walt Disney production directed by Burt Gillett, and uh, it was the first commercially released three strip Technicolor film. I think of anything animated or live action. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, the yeah. movie itself is, I don't know, a bunch of trees and flowers dancing around, getting in tree fights. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels very much of a piece with, like, skeleton dance, uh, yeah. as far as just, like, it's things that don't move, uh, moving, and yeah. uh, wiggling around, and you get to watch them wiggle and play music. Yeah. No uh, dialogue, but uh, there's some plot, there's, like, you know, some some romance, some some fighting, some uh, some disaster, some... You know, there's there's something for everybody in this picture. <laughs> it's it's seven minutes long. <laughs> Go check it out. <laughs> uh, it's on Disney Plus. There there is unlike a lot of stuff from early Disney, uh, which is unfortunate. You know, I want to watch the one. I want to watch the the stuff about Satan on Disney Plus, but mm. they really only do the ones that like I don't know are notable. Oh, about that flowers and trees. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the 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 most they go is. Uh, the the most scariest they go is skeleton dance. Right. This one, uh, it has some fun like cartoon gags in it. Uh, yeah. There's like a fire that breaks out, and 
uh, some kind of bell flowers start ringing like bells, and mm-hmm. there are some some uh, uh, birds that go up, like go and pierce through a cloud to make rain fall down through it. Uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, there's the actual fire itself is like sometimes personified into like little fire guys that like walk around. Mm-hmm. Just real classic <laughs> '30s cartoon stuff. Love it. It's hard to talk about cartoons, but like. Yeah. They're fun. They're great. The three-step Technicolor thing reminds me of when I went to the Academy Museum in LA, they had probably a later Technicolor camera than, I mean, it was for live action, but it was a three-step Technicolor camera that they used for Wizard of Oz. And uh, just the engineering of that thing is mind-boggling. Like, looking Hmm. at it and all all the gears and, like, mechanisms inside and has... three actual film strips that go through it and a prism and like the film is going in different directions and it's like it's crazy well i missed that when i went to the museum um maybe they moved it i don't know um but uh so the three strip technicolor process i think is a really cool innovation so that's oh yeah for this year it's real serious like they got uh... blue now (laughs) <laughs> yeah and i guess they show that off with the sky this movie yeah. i'm not sure if it is to do with any kind of degradation i feel like the colors are a little washed out at Maybe least a, in l- the... a little muted but they look good like it's noticeably kind of more color than anything else we've seen it, yeah it's more normal color that you're used to yeah. seeing and not this kind of like bizarro two strip like like red green kind of yeah yeah like this kind of strange reality of two yeah. strip technicolor which does Although, look cool but no yeah. less uh no less and in fact even less artificial than black and white i suppose mm. right yeah uh do you got anything else on this there's just there's a spooky tree with a lizard in it that's fun <laughs> yeah um... there's kind of a, a creepy uh a creepy lecherous tree yeah <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of like, why do we need one of those in there? But well, there needs to be some conflict. Have a creepy perv tree in there. They read they read the screenwriting book that said that you gotta have conflict. Yeah. You gotta, a tree has to save a cat in the first act, and there needs to be a creepy tree to fight, have a sword fight with. So we move on to bigger, longer films? Uh, yeah, we're watching South Park, the, the movie. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I think we just felt like we needed to throw this in as the first three strip thing. It's yeah. uh, it's cool. If you like cartoons, watch it. It's fun. Yeah. But let's move on to our feature presentation. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Uh, we were just talking about a creepy tree. You want to just mm. talk about a, a creepy movie? Want to talk about uh, Vampire? Sure. This is Carl Theodore Dreyer whose last film was Joan of Arc. Uh, he, uh, his previous movie was a silent, uh, a silent Jesus-y movie, and this is a, a sound devil movie. <laughs> <laughs> a little oversimplified. This is... Um, it, I mean, not wrong, though. It, it, this is a sound movie, but really only barely. Uh, uh, maybe in the vein of... Um, uh, Land of Gold, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bunuel movie. Um, yeah. It just uses very sparing dialogue, and mostly it's just vibes. 
Yeah. And in fact, like I, I think that this movie, it feels like it it owes a lot to uh, Boonwell, Unchan Andalou, and that kind of thing. It like it, it is a horror movie, but it's it, it, it it's a horror vampire movie, but a lot of it feels kind of surreal and avant garde. Yeah. It feels very kind of a piece with the other, like, European avant-garde stuff that we've been watching. Yeah, it's wild, like, how... This is also a vampire movie, but it's, like, so wildly different from 1931 Dracula. It's like... And Nosferatu, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, I think all the sound was done after... You know, it was recorded after. It wasn't... None of it was, like, recorded sync. Yeah, it was produced simultaneously in a number of different languages. And I think, mm. yeah, it was like a kind of ADR, like English, German, yeah. French, whatever, on top of it. Uh, yeah, it feels, I think, stylistically kind of more similar to silent movies than a lot of the talkies we've seen. For that reason, like it's got, I mean, it has intertitles and it has like exposition through just intertitles for one thing. Well, it's the yeah, I guess it's like. They're not like intertitles with dialogue, though. They are. Yeah, yeah. They're intertitles that are just kind of setting scenes or talking about stuff, mm-hmm. which actually it, it almost feels more like some of those really extreme silent films like The Last Laugh, where it's like we're not going to use any intertitles, right? Because mm-hmm. this movie is told uh, very, very visually um, for even for a silent film. Uh, yeah. even compared yeah. to silent films and uh, maybe maybe having just a little bit of sound is it, it helps it get away with that uh, mm-hmm. make it make it easier to to handle <laughs> <laughs> right but it, it 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 plays around with sound design a little bit there were a few moments where there's like off-screen sound or things like that nothing quite as like wild as like uh lodge d'or was doing i think but um there's 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 some use of sound in this movie in cool ways. Mm-hmm. Um, th- I think the most striking thing about it is is the like the um, the camera stuff, right? Like like as opposed to the sound. Right? Yeah, there's like lots of moving camera. There's like a lot of kind of like in Joan of Arc. There's a lot of like really inventive uh, uses is usage of camera in this movie. Um, yeah, probably my favorite thing and like one of the more notable scenes from this movie is uh, the guy getting loaded into the coffin and the camera yeah, is like looking yeah. out of the coffin in like POV as the coffin's getting taken away. Rules is great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like they, they put like a, a, they put like a top on top of the coffin that has a little window uh, right above his face. And so you're seeing like a point of view shot looking up at the sky of him being like wheeled around lying down yeah. on the on, on the coffin and i can't say i've ever seen a shot like that in any movies before right yeah uh like just looking straight up and then like moving around watching kind of buildings yeah. go by uh uh looking yeah looking up into the sky and it's 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 it's, it's eerie <laughs> yeah i think it's eerie because it's simultaneously not something you see in movies very often but something that i think like people experience sometimes like yeah. Of like being on like a table or like a any kind of moving thing and like looking straight up as you're like moved around. Even if you're just like on a sled or something, you know, it's like that's an experience I've definitely had many times. Right. But it's yeah, it's like a, it puts you into the POV of the movie in a really effective way that. 
Yeah, it just doesn't happen often. Yeah. And I mean, like, speaking of the kind of, like, weird stuff going on in this movie, this character is not actually really getting loaded into a coffin. (laughs) Because, like, sort of what's happening is there's some vampire stuff or whatever and like he ends up chasing after a bad guy the main character and then he just kind of gets tired sits down (laughs) on a bench and then just randomly astral projects into a potential future yeah that's the kind Uh, of movie this is (laughs) so yeah he's like sitting on the bench and then he just splits into two people uh and one of them's kind of sneaking around a castle and looking (laughs) and looking through stuff it's a it's a double exposure which you know Mm we we uh the age of double exposure i feel like is over a little bit uh which is sad because it might be winding down but it's still got some life left in it. i think i think we still got some some cool multiple exposure things yeah to look forward to uh i don't know if invisible man does is uses that but uh that's next next episode true but yeah it's like the classic phantom carriage style Dub, mm. uh, double exposure where it's just he's ghostly and and looking at stuff yeah this movie has a lot of really interesting like shadow imagery in it yeah like a lot of stuff that must have been like kind of interesting three-dimensional objects that were like behind the camera and had a light splashing onto them so that you could see like a really really deliberately crafted shadow uh in front of the camera um stuff with like you know a guy with a peg leg climbing up a ladder and like you can't tell exactly like what's going on until like he moves through the scene in a full way and just kind of like interesting three-dimensional objects like hanging and spinning around and creating interesting shadows yeah uh i think like joan of arc this movie has a very kind of like minimalist set design hmm which I think helps the kind of the shadow play stuff where it's like there's a lot of ni- big blank walls to kind of like throw shadows onto. Um, Throwing shade. There you go. <laughs> um, and I think I was I was uh, watching and reading some of the Criterion uh, bonus features uh, for this movie. And um, one of the things with like how kind of mobile the camera is uh I guess that came partially from because it was filmed in real locations. A lot of the rooms were too small to get like a single wide shot of. Hmm. So it ended up being like, oh, I guess we have to like move the camera over here to this thing. Move the camera over here to this thing to get everything in one take. But that leads to this like really cool kind of like roving kind of POV camera thing. That's like revealing different things. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like something we've talked about is our excitement at like where silent film could have gone if Mm -hmm. it continued on a little longer. Cause it had been in this period of, you know, blossoming um, ingenuity and then sound came along and kind of stopped all of that. And I feel like this is sort of picking up along the same lines of a lot of the late silent film uh, where it's doing really interesting stuff with the camera that I think a lot of the sound films are not. Mm Mm-hmm. Another thing that kind of struck me about this movie is because it's it's a vampire movie, but it's not a Dracula movie. Yes. So I think it uses kind of like different vampire lore than I'm kind of used to seeing. Like, I feel like so much of what at least like Americans associate with vampires is just Dracula stuff. Whereas this feels like it's kind of going back to the source of like original 
like pre Dracula vampire mythology, which is pretty cool. Yeah, this yeah, it it like you're saying it predates Dracula and it's specifically based on a, an Irish writer called J F- Sheridan Lefanu. Oh. Um I wonder if are there's any relation. I have some Sheridan family uh, uh history, so I, uh, Sheridan in Ireland is like the most common last name, so that's Is it really? It's it's up there. It's uh huh. there's uh when I was in Ireland, I talked to someone and they said, yep, they're not rare. <laughs> are, are, are you also related to the hotels? That's Sheraton with a T, so I, I don't think so. <laughs> this, uh, but yeah, it was a, uh, there was a collection of stories that Jay Sheridan Lafanu uh, wrote called In a Glass Darkly, uh, which I, I enjoyed the scanner darkly uh, uh, structure of things. I'll Anything do, that like, ends with darkly is is fun. Yeah, just it's it's like um I I I feel like a scanner darkly a glass darkly it's a good it's the same kind of good uh uh joke structure of <laughs> I blank at <laughs> I like like I have no mouth and I must scream you know oh yeah like uh just I I I riff on. I have no mouth and I must scream endlessly to the uh, to the annoyance of everyone around me. Yeah, no, it's it's a good structure to build off of. I think. <laughs> uh, anyway, two things about like the vampire lore in this movie is like, in this vampires are like explicitly demonic, which feels different from like Dracula lore. Yeah, and the you have to use an iron stake to kill a vampire. And that is to nail their soul to the ground, which I think is a really, I guess that's where vampire staking came from. It's like you're nailing the body down so that their soul can't escape. Yeah, and it talks about how you have to like, uh, you know, they are these kind of evil murderers in the afterlife and you need to murder their body to, to, as like a sort of, karmic justice or whatever yeah um yeah the the vampire in this is is almost more like a ghost that then they have to like murder the body from the ghost in order to kind of right yeah yeah Yeah, it's interesting it's an interesting take on it for sure this movie is primarily composed of the main character wandering around and looking at weird stuff Mm -hmm. uh the one of the first things that happens is that he kind of checks into a hotel room and then just a, a weird guy walks into his room. <laughs> and then and then he says, hi, I have a book and I, that I have a little package here that says, open this when I die. Uh, and uh, you, you can have this. <laughs> and and uh, soon enough, he dies. They open it and it's like a it's like a vampire lore book. Yeah. It's like here's here's everything you need to know about vampires. But we're in too case I'm ki- in, in case I'm killed by a vampire, which he kind of was not. He was shot. <laughs> <laughs> I think the vampire kind of it, it, uh, caused him to be shot, but right. you he know, was shot by like one of the vampire's henchmen. Uh, but yeah, we get a lot of like interesting kind of proto Draculean vampire lore uh, yeah. from from these little. Uh, bits of the book that we get to see including yeah yeah, the details about the 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 communion with the devil and all that kind Mm -hmm. of thing also just vampire spelled with a y is fun Mm -hmm. it's sort of it's sort of a 
I mean, yeah, they don't say it out loud in the movie, but I, I, uh, I always like in in vampire movies when they have to, they like are researching, and someone's like, there's some expert, Van Helsing or whoever, and it's like, ah, yes, the vampire, and they always have to really chew on the word and make it sound old and European. Um, love that, love to see it. You got anything else on this movie, Glenn? Um, I don't think so. I think we covered the the main bits that I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, it's like this movie's <laughs> a cool example of like Euro avant-garde like experimental movies and also like a cool comparison to like the Universal Monster movies that are coming out around the same time. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is Criterion Core European art universal horror. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but we could pivot to then talking about an actual universal horror picture hey let's do it you know we are recording this two days away from halloween Ooh. so let's let's uh let's get spooky in here let's hear about the mummy Ooh, mummies uh such a funny thing that mummies are like a classic monster it's just like a egyptian people who are dead is a monster <laughs> <laughs> but hey a lot of that has to do with I don't know, lay it all on this movie's feet, because, like, mummy stories were a thing throughout the, like, 1800s into the 1930s. But, um, hey, this is, like, this is the original mummy. It's got, you know, much like Frankenstein and Dracula the year before, it's, like, it's really kind of cemented mummies as, like, a classic movie monster. Yeah, which I I was excited to watch this movie because I've always been a little unclear on what mummy's deal is you know (laughs) like dracula wants to suck your blood uh uh frankenstein is tortured but like what does the mummy really want like what's what's his what does he do mummy just wants Uh, his lady back you know mummy's just (laughs) mummy's just uh you know heart sick and and lovelorn yeah, which which is interesting. Like, I feel like this movie did not answer the question of what the monster mummies does, uh, <laughs> because it is very like individual story of this one guy who was mummified and wants to find his lady across time. Right. Basically, we might, for that we might have to watch some of the later '40s mummy movies with Lon Chaney Jr. because mm-hmm. those are kind of much more of. Those are the really, like, mummy and bandages chasing people movies. This has, like, a single scene of Boris Karloff and bandages, and then the rest of the time he's just Boris Karloff with dry skin. (laughs) Moisturized Boris. I know, yeah. Been stuck in a sarcophagus for a thousand years. Gotta get some some lotion. (laughs) Uh, So, yes, uh... Boris Karloff is Imhotep. Imhotep. So as a big fan, I had never seen this movie until we watched it for this show, despite mm-hmm. being an enormous fan of the 1999 remake of this movie, mm-hmm. which is very different. Obviously, like the 99 movie is like an, an, a pulpy adventure romp. Yeah. This is not. But I was... There's no Tomb of the Dragon Emperor in this nope. one. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that isn't in the origi- the 99 mummy either, but... <laughs> I was kind of pleasantly surprised at how how much stuff from the 99 Mummy comes from this movie. Hmm. Like, there was more, like, lines of dialogue and just, like, story elements than I had realized. I thought it was, like, a very loose remake of just, like, the name of the mummy and the fact that he is a mummy and he wants 
to get his his lost love back. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's more more to it. There's I mean there's uh there's the line Imhotep does not like to be touched, which made me chuckle just because that's in the '90s one also. I need to rewatch that. Yeah, there's a. I know. I thought this was a fun movie. Not great, but maybe there are some some things in this that really kind of pushed it higher in in terms of quality. I think than Frankenstein or Dracula. I think maybe it is less. It's less idiosyncratic than Frankenstein and Dracula. It's got mm. less of a like a unique identity, but yeah, I think yeah. it is less uneven than those two movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like right. much more like watchable than the, yes. nothing wrong <laughs> with the other ones, but like like it's I mean a little bit wrong with the other ones, but like it, it's a movie that's like solid, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that probably somewhat has to do with it's not based on a stage play, as far as I know. I think it is like an original screenplay mm-hmm. this movie is directed by carl freund who shot dracula and also metropolis and last laugh and uh i feel like he does a he does kind of a better job of um i think the like visual style of this movie is a lot more there's a lot more to it than uh than dracula for sure yeah dracula trades a lot on its sets mm-hmm. rather than it's like actual yeah, camera work. Yeah, this like, like that. camera moves around. There's a lot of like great shadow stuff, like real spooky lighting in this thing. The lighting just around Boris Karloff's face in a lot of scenes is incredible. Like this movie knows that Boris Karloff's face is a special effect. Like that's all you need. Like light his sp- <laughs> light his face spooky, and you're set. Gets a lot of mileage out of that that face. Yeah, there's like a part where they're kind of um, like superimposing like what skull or like mummy imagery Mm -hmm. on top of his face uh looks looks cool but yeah like you're saying his face is he's got he's got a he's a unique enough face anyway that you can just go ah Korloff Um, yeah I, I think maybe one of the things that makes this movie sort of hold up less well than the other universal ones or like maybe feels less memorable is like he's only really a mummy in the first scene right where like they dig him up they find him he comes to life and then he immediately like leaves, right? He steals the scroll and walks out. You just see the bandages walking out of the door. Yeah, there there isn't like so much creature stuff in yeah. this. Because after, after that, after he's just a guy. He's just a wizard, <laughs> right? right? Like he's just a wizard trying to do his his nefarious plans. But it's like the only like he was a mummy, but. You know, the actual mummy aspect is sort of lost at a certain point, which I guess happens in the remakes and things, too. But um, but I don't know. I feel like like I, I would agree with you, maybe, that uh, if this movie had more creature stuff in it, it would probably mm-hmm. be more just fun. I, I do think that that like first scene where he is like in the sarcophagus, in the bandages and like comes to life and scares a guy into insanity basically uh i think it's very spooky good scene uh yes yeah yeah you get the the hand coming in and like into frame and things just like just like good subtle uh scary stuff um yeah and then uh and then we we time jump ahead and get kind of the more I don't know, I think traditional mummy story, which I guess is just the remake, 
but it's like you know there's there's a bunch of you know european explorers come in and they're digging up stuff right and they want to find treasure and then imhotep shows back up again it's like hey you want to dig look over here (laughs) they're like whoa a tomb how'd you know He's like, I don't know, man. I'm just, I'm just around. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did think this movie's sort of like, uh, if I had one major criticism of it, it's it's like very, uh, kind of like colonialist view of archaeology because there's there's a line where like our theoretically our like heroic lead character is like, oh, what a dirty trick that Cairo museum keeping everything we found, and it's like, yeah, the stuff you found in their country. Dingus. <laughs> I, I I wonder if this movie is being critical of that kind of stuff. Like in some ways it feels like it because right. Like there's a, there's a certain, um, I don't know. There's a certain like idiocy to those characters and, and True, there, yeah. there's a certain kind of righteous, uh, 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 fighting back that Imhotep is doing. Like he's the villain, but it's like one of those situations where the villain is saying the right thing, but quote unquote going too mm-hmm. far. Yeah. Uh, Cause yeah, they do seem like total colonialist dinguses yeah. basically. So the, the kind of male lead of this movie is a guy named Frank Wemple, which is a hell of a name. <laughs> um, And he reminds me of, right. So like the, like male lead of the 99 mummy is like a heroic, like mercenary, you know, rough and tumble action guy. In this, he's like a stuck-up, tuxedo-wearing archaeologist guy. He he reminds me of, like, the character... Who's, like, in his dad's shadow. Yeah, he reminds me of, like, the character that, uh, instead of a romantic lead, he's the guy that, like, the woman needs to, like, escape from in order to, you know... He's, like, the the guy Uh from Titanic. I forget the character's name. but Billy Titanic. Billy Zane in Titanic. Where it's like, oh, he's wealthy and he comes from a good family and all this stuff. And then it's like, you spend 10 minutes with him. It's like, Jesus, this guy sucks. Like, get away from here. Go find <laughs> a, a, you know, a, um, a, a greasy boy to be with. And uh, that's what Frank Wemple is in this movie to me. Um, but he's kind of treated as just like, oh, no, this is our lead character. Deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the kind of mummy backstory of Imhotep where it's like he is... He is driven by his his love for Anaxuna Moon. Um, nice. Which feels more... Uh, it is like, it's a more relatable kind of like empathetic uh, motivation for a villain to have, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you get a lot more from him. He's not, you know... Frankenstein's monster was just confused and angry. And Dracula was kind of mysterious. Yeah. Um, but it there's is... like a lot more interiority with Imhotep. Yeah, he's more of kind of a fully formed character, which is which is good. So much so that I think it's funny that like later Dracula movies kind of at least the um Francis Ford Coppola one has the sort of like lost reincarnation love interest angle that this movie does. Which I don't think is in the book Dracula, which I haven't read, but I think I said last episode, like, I'm pretty sure that comes from this movie, but I could be wrong. Hmm. Uh, also, this movie has a, a score, like a musical score. Yes. Which really yeah. stuck out to me. 
it's uh yeah it's rare but like have yeah diegetic or non-diegetic music Mm -hmm. uh yeah like used in like key moments yeah 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 some other things that i i liked about it like i like how it's it's the cairo in this this movie takes place almost entirely in cairo and it it cairo in this movie is like a big metropolitan city which is how it actually is i feel like Raiders of the Lost Ark maybe is is the the main culprit of making movie Cairo always seem like a place like way out in the desert and it's like no it's a city like it's there's cars <laughs> and things around like it's not um cuz Raiders did not shoot in Cairo they shot in Tunisia hmm. um and so all like the weird like back alleys and stuff from that movie I was like oh was, I always grew up in like oh yeah, that's what Cairo is it's like no Cairo has like big buildings and cars and things yeah i mean i guess i um uh, I guess that checks out because I haven't been to Cairo, but I've heard one of the best free views of the pyramids is on the second story of a KFC there in you go. Cairo. That's so. where you gotta go. Yeah, I think this movie has like it does have a lot of like drawing room scenes, like Frankenstein and Dracula do, of this like kind of people sitting on sofas and talking, uh, which isn't isn't my favorite. But I I think this might be my favorite of the three, despite it. It has a lot of clunky writing, but I think it's like the best directed, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I uh, I realized that I I took all of my notes in Microsoft Word and I didn't transfer them over to my Google Doc, so I have nothing. Oh boy. Uh, so I'm just working off of memory, but also I just clicked over to the Scorpion King Book of Souls, <laughs> which is the fifth Scorpion King movie. There's what? How many? The fifth installment in the Scorpion King series. Oh, I... It's a direct-to-video sword and sorcery action adventure film <laughs> that was released in 2018. Damn, I thought there was only the, uh, the 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 two Scorpion film, the two Scorpion King films, one of which was direct-to-video, which is a prequel to the first Scorpion King, which makes Scorpion King two a prequel. To a spinoff of a sequel of a remake, which, to my knowledge, is makes it unique in I, in all of film history. <laughs> I love telling people that fact. <laughs> I love talking to people about the Scorpion King two, a movie <laughs> I've never seen and probably never will see. <laughs> I don't know. There's some good good bits of tension. Nice like spooky dark museums in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a swirling pool of flashback smoke. That was cool, yeah. Kind of having like a yeah. frame around yeah. the whole thing, yeah. Yeah. Other than like the clunky writing, I feel like uh, there was a lot to like in this. Yeah, yeah. It's a solid. It's a solid movie. Yeah, I, I would agree that like it's probably the one that I would most readily throw on, not in the background, but as an actual movie to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shall we uh, keep it keep it Halloweeny in a sense? I think so. We might as well. Uh, let's, let's, let's continue with, um, uh, a classic film, one that I've seen before, but, uh, you could call it an exploitation movie, but it's complicated. Mm. It's called Freaks. Yeah. I mean, just the title itself was a bit like, hmm, is this okay? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which I think kind of lulled me into a false sense of, I was ready for this movie to be like very, uh, exploitative and kind of like hard to watch for that reason. Is and this your first time seeing it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was far. It was not the movie I expected it to be. In a good no. Yeah. 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 
It is a surprisingly nuanced and pro-freak movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is a very pro-freak movie, for sure. This is directed by Todd Browning, who did Dracula in 31. But this is probably his like second mm. most famous movie. Yeah. And probably uh, is more like well-regarded as like part of his filmography, I feel like. I mean, it's a much better movie than Dracula. I think so. Um, it also it's also like more up from like his wheelhouse too, because Todd Browning yeah. grew, like grew up in the circus. He's like a weird circus guy. Yeah. Um, and so it's like he's making a very kind of like pro circus person movie. Yeah, uh, like like Charlie Chaplin. I think yeah. it's like yeah. the dignity of circus people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but this is like specifically the dignity of like sideshow freaks. Yeah, uh, it's showing their interiority. It's showing their day to day lives. It's showing how they are um, l- treated poorly by other people. Yeah. By by by. I mean, honestly, like to use twenty twenty three parlance, but th- to to share sentiments that the movie has, mm-hmm. uh, like able bodied people, neurotypical people. Just like, yeah, non-disabled people. Like, this movie is like, these these people uh, oppress other people who are just ha- tr- trying to live their lives, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you wouldn't expect it from a movie called Freaks right. that um, has a tagline. Oh, God, what is the tagline? <laughs> it's something uh, real scary. <laughs> it is... Uh, yeah, this is an antiquated term. I'm I'm using it in this context, but can a full-grown woman truly love a midget? Is the uh is the tagline of yeah. this movie, which is not what the movie is about at all. Not really. It, like, it's more like <laughs> yeah, it's it's more like can can a can a little person tolerate a horrible uh, a horrible woman? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's like eighty percent of this movie is the sort of like day-to-day day-to-day lives and like dramas of uh, a group of sideshow performers and then only the last like 10 percent is what i kind of expected more of the movie to be which is a sort of like dark revenge thriller which i was where a lot of this movie sort of like famous imagery comes from speaking of famous things from this movie that the uh the the phrase one of us yeah comes from this uh, although I feel like people usually go one of us, one of us, but yeah. in this it is Google gobble, Google gobble, one uh, of us, one of we, us. <laughs> we accept her, we accept her, Google gobble, right. Google gobble, one of us. An- another like hugely surprising because I'd heard that so many times. Like that's been parodied up the wazoo. Like it's like super common just in culture, right? Like it's in The Simpsons, it's in South Park, it's in other cartoons. I'm sure. <laughs> But um, that's a thing where, like, context is... The context of it is really different in the movie than I think it's usually... Than it usually is in parodies. In parodies, yeah. In parodies, it's, like, a threat. Right. But in this, it is, like... And they always leave out the very important part of the chant, which is, we accept her, we accept her. Yeah. This, so th- this is in a scene where a uh, sort of main character, who's a, a, a little person, he... Uh, is marrying a uh, uh, he's marrying a full-grown woman, as the tagline says. 
Um, and but she is only marrying him for his money, and she mocks him behind his back, and she doesn't yeah. respect him. She's a and, uh, she's a trapeze artist named Cleopatra, and is just the worst. Is she's just awful, an awful, awful human being. Is marrying this poor guy that is like infatuated with her purely for his money. Yeah. And it's like everyone else like around them can kind of see what's happening, but like doesn't really want to say anything because like they don't want to hurt anyone. They're just like, all right, fine. And so they have this big wedding banquet where they are like accepting Cleopatra into their their community. They're like, yeah, oh, like we're so happy that you're here. We accept you like, you know, this is such a happy moment. Yeah, and that's become where the, a freak with us. We right, accept you. Yeah. That's where the chant comes from. And so it's a you're like really like kind of like affirming celebratory thing in the film, but which makes it all the worse when she she hears one of us we accept her and she goes oh no yeah (laughs) she's like that's not I do not want to be associated with these people at all I look down on them and don't see them as real people um which is funny that that's how it it's always parodied it's parodied from that character's perspective which is the threatening yeah. sort of like oh no this is bad which then leads to cleopatra trying to uh poison her husband yeah the husband is named hans um mm-hmm. played by harry earls um he uh may be known to some people as a member of the lollipop guild Oh, I don't know if I knew that. He is, um, he is part of a family of, uh, I think mm-hmm. four, four little people who were in like, you know, circus tours and vaudeville and that kind yeah. of thing. When he is marrying, getting, getting infatuated with Cleopatra, he's already engaged to, uh, another, uh, another person of his stature, um, uh, who actually is his sister in real life. Right. Is played by his actual sister, Daisy Earls. Mm-hmm. But they are playing unrelated, romantically connected characters in the film. Yeah. Which I'm sure is awkward times on set, but I don't know. <laughs> I They did strike me as, like, not professional actors. Like, initially, I think their performances felt a little bit stilted when they're just kind of, like, talking to each other generally and just sort of like making conversation. But weirdly enough, yeah. I feel like as the movie goes along and they like, they have to really get into like much more like emotionally complex, like heated scenes. I think their performances really got better. Like I think when yeah. it really counts, like when they need to like nail like an emotional scene, they nail it. That is totally true. Actually. Yeah. Like they, they're, they're, they're good at, I mean, because a lot of the emotional scenes that they are at being asked to handle are probably akin to right yeah. things that they've experienced in their own lives. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, they just are not that good at dialogue, but also, I don't know, they're originally, they're German. So that too, uh, it's like maybe. second language that might, you know, that might not help. Uh, but I mean, these are largely the people in the movie are not professional actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hired real freaks, real sideshow yeah. people. Uh, this isn't as it would have, this was originally intended to be a Lon Chaney movie. 
Uh, and this would have been another kind of transformative role of him mm-hmm. kind of pretending he has no legs or something like that. But like all of the people here are, are uh, you know, real. Um, <laughs> I don't really know how to phrase it besides saying real, freaks, si- real you know? sideshow performers. Yeah. Yes. They're often sideshow performers They're They, but they are like, nobody's like pretending to have some, some kind of right condition. They don't have they anyone don't like have. wacky prosthetics. It's like, yeah. Everyone is appearing as themselves in the movie, more or less playing a version of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of them are doing like acts that they have done on stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a guy who is called the pillow man in some contexts who uh, like has no arms and no legs. And there's just an extended scene of like, you get to see him roll and light a cigarette because that was one of his signature acts. Yeah. And like, it's just really impressive to watch. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> Using his mouth, to mm-hmm. be clear. Yeah. I don't know. There's all the plot stuff of the, right. There's like Cleopatra wants to marry Hans for his secret fortune. And uh, she does not want to be included amongst the freaks. Uh, so she plots to murder him with poison. Yes. Um, But Hans figures that out. And so does everyone else like in their community of, of circus people. Um, there is, there's sort of the like able-bodied couple that are sort of like put there almost as the sort of like normal people in the movie to have like, we need some, some like yeah. normal actors in this film just to, yeah, like they're, they're wearing shirts that say ally on them <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Um, which I actually think like, even though they are kind of, Right, they're the only sort of like normie characters that aren't absolutely awful people, mm-hmm. and even though they, it does kind of feel like they're like placed there just to like give general audiences someone to empathize with, I I do think their place in the story works. It's like a thing where like on paper I'm like we you don't need that like just have the cast be the cast, but I actually I was surprised at how effective those characters were. I think the the thing of like having all real sideshow performers in this movie is one of the things I think that makes this movie stand out and like hold up now. And is like one of the more, like one of the better reasons for this movie to exist. And yet that's also the thing that kind of like killed it upon release is like most audiences in 1932 just couldn't deal with it. Or at least test audiences couldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is why MGM decided to cut 25 minutes out of this movie. And make it an hour long. Or like under an hour long. Isn't this this movie is like fifty something minutes long in its current form? Uh no, it's it's over an hour. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like an hour ten, something like that. The, yeah, there short. are a number of different endings to this movie. Um they uh I, I, it's a little unclear to me exactly like what the initial intended ending was. I, I think so. Basically, what happens is that when all of the freaks discover that Cleopatra is trying to poison Hans, uh, they... Cleopatra uh, is also uh, sleeping with the circus strongman during this whole time. And is sort of like actively discussing her murder plot with him and kind of involving him in in it. Uh, Hercules is that character's name. So the two of them, there there are some really, really good scenes of the two of them kind of 
walking around and then like having a bunch of eyes like peering at them through stairs like through the gaps and stairs or just like looking around the corner or just some like really threatening looking dwarf um uh like like on the side just like i'm gonna get you i'm gonna get you but uh uh this movie kind of ends up taking a bit of a turn because like these you know able-bodied uh quote-unquote normal people like uh, end up just being so horrific like yeah that it's, it's a real I think, it's a real who are the real freaks movie right where for it's sure. like hercules yeah. and cleopatra are so terrible like they are just the most horrendously cruel people and if we're like what it, yeah like i don't know 40 something minutes of runtime you're just seeing them like treat everyone around them terribly and just being so selfish and so sort of like looking down upon everyone because they're, you know, they're both tall and, and, you know, statuesque. And then the last, like, I don't know, 10 minutes, it turns into like a crazy revenge movie and it kind of rolls. Well, that's the thing, right? It's, it's like, like the, uh, so it's what it seems to be is that the original intended ending of the movie is that you know we have developed Hercules and Cleopatra as these horrible people so now we the audience are going to get to enjoy the catharsis of the freaks killing them and not killing ma- them or maiming horribly them. maiming them and turning them into what they looked down upon in the first place which is fantastic yeah. in the original I don't think footage exists of this anymore but in the original version they castrated hercules Mm -hmm. uh and 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 so turned him into like like a he has like a high-pitched voice in the end what we do see is that cleopatra has been cut up into a chicken lady basically she's she's been turned into a squawking bird uh that uh you know she can no longer speak she's got like a like a, a wings and like a beak basically no legs yeah yeah like one, and like one eye is messed up yeah and and so yeah they're like cut her up and did some you know dr moreau stuff on her but like uh and that was i it seems to be the original intended very dark ending of the movie but but cathartic and like yes like the the, the poetic justice basically mm-hmm. yeah uh after some test screenings, they tacked on the ending, which is currently on the movie, where Hans talks about how he didn't want the rest of the freaks to go that far. Um, and he just wanted uh he just wanted to like take the poison from her and and kick her out, basically. Mm-hmm. And then they're like uh, Yeah, and, and so kind of positioning him as uh, the sort of morally superior Yeah. He also lives you know. in a mansion now in that ending. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a quote I found from the art director of the movie, Meryl Pye, where uh, halfway through the preview, a lot of people got up and ran out. They didn't walk out. They ran out. <laughs> so test audiences were not crazy about the film. I think probably largely to do with the ending. In its current form, I feel like this movie feels like... Almost a good movie, but it's it's so clearly been cut down and like re-edited. Like during the the sort of like height of tension of the climax of the movie, where they're they're uh, 
you know, Cleopatra and Hercules are being confronted and like chased through the woods by all the other performers, it just like hard cuts out of that scene and like goes back mm-hmm. to the kind of framing device from the beginning. Um, so it's like the the way it's been re-edited is so poorly done that it like completely robs any sense of tension from that entire third act, which hmm. sucks. And so it's like I I feel like if the original version of this movie existed, I would be like, great, like four stars. What a picture. But as it stands currently, it's this like you know, kind of not quite good movie because it's so like it's so clearly been censored. I think it still works in many ways. I think there are parts that you can ignore uh, that you can like see as like very obvious concessions to uh, a, a, uh, an unwoke public, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, And uh, you know, I think you can like look at that stuff in context. And I think that the, the intended meaning still shines through yeah. and a lot of the intended like emotions still shine through. Yeah. And I think the, like the scary stuff that I'd always seen clips from is like, is much more that kind of like righteous anger feeling yeah. that, in the yeah. context of the movie. And so like, I was, I was like almost cheering during the like revenge stuff. Cause it's so, yeah. it's also just like directed really well. It's like there's a thunderstorm, there's like rain coming down, and especially early, like you were saying, of like Hercules and Cleopatra like slowly catching on that everyone knows what they're up to. And like there's a bit where they're in a caravan. <laughs> I think it's like Cleopatra's in the caravan that she shares with Hans, and uh, two guys come in, and one of them just pulls out a switchblade, and the other one just like kind of casually takes a luger at and starts like cleaning it. And it's just like <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Um, and then all the kind of like crawling through mud after them stuff is, um, it's really good. I think that's the thing, right? Is that like that, that those ending scenes, they really tow a strange line between like this cathartic revenge fantasy mm-hmm. and, and then this other kind of interpretation of someone who would call this a horror movie, which is that the, um, that the freaks kind of end up becoming scary villains by the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because that, those scenes, the scenes are definitely playing up how sort of like unusual, I guess they're they're. I'm trying to not be offensive, but maybe I should just like, I don't know when, when the, the guy with no arms or legs is crawling through the mud with a knife in his mouth. It's, it's a little scary. That's, that's an, that's an, unnerving sight to behold i mean in in a similar way to how uh i don't know like strange different bodies even now are just a a shortcut to horror through the uncanny valley yeah uh uh, in, in in horror movies but like that's the thing is like i think that like there's horror imagery there's scary imagery but i think the movie does enough to me, at least, I think the movie does enough contextualizing of these people as real people uh, with real feelings uh, that, like, that it's almost like 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 subversive. It's almost like yeah. subverting this horror iconography. If you see a guy with no arms and no legs and a knife in his mouth, 
like kind of like wiggling toward you like that without that context you would go oh scary but then like in this the movie has set up that it's like you know who that guy is yeah right and it's like you so there's a certain amount of like you are rooting for him in that moment yeah yeah Yeah. it's it's very complex yeah it's uh it uh, it is it's like kind of a perfect example of a yeah just like a weird line that horror kind of sits on of like simultaneously like the horror genre tends to be very celebratory of like outcasts and um and you know sort of like people on the fringes of society at the same time horror also is like very exploitative of of like deformity or of like scarring or you know things that are just like this is just people but yeah. horror really tends to play up you know things that that kind of set people on edge um even if they're not always for the right reasons. Um, and this, yeah, this movie is playing into both of those things for sure. Yeah. But it was, it was a much more uh, kind of like empathetic nuanced movie than I was expecting. There's, there's like so much to chew on with this movie. Yeah. Um, we could do a whole episode just about this movie. I feel like. Yeah. I, there, there is a, a, a graphic novel that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, that is. So one of the, most notable i'm gonna i i keep using the word freaks because it's like what the what the uh is the name of the movie movie uses but one of the most notable freaks there there are a few people with um microcephaly uh Mm -hmm. uh or also known as pinheads i guess uh that's that's the that's the old circus term the old it's an old circus term uh which yeah is probably very uh unkind um one of them is named uh schlitzy who was a pretty like i don't know pretty famous pretty long running sideshow person mm-hmm. uh and there's like a graphic novel that came out a few years ago that is like a biography of him uh which i i'm i'm very interested to read mm. yeah um yeah i i i read up i i tried to read up at least on like wikipedia of a lot of the cast of this movie just cuz i was i was curious like how how, either how they got involved or just like what seeing how much of their just kind of like in, interior lives are portrayed in this movie like mm-hmm. how much of that reflected reality i guess um but being circus performers in the 1930s there's not like a whole lot written about them <laughs> like there's not a lot of like real documentation even for for some of them mm-hmm. um so yeah that i would also like to check that out send me send me a link Sure, I'll put it in the. I'll I'll send you a link so you can put it in the notes too. There you go. Uh, but yeah, like you know, just to shout out, like <laughs> I don't know, some of the some of the like people that are represented in this movie. I guess like there are uh, dwarfs and and other little people. There are uh, some real Siamese twins. That there's this like B plot about the them and their kind of troubled. I don't know, relationships yeah. with men or whatever. Yeah, they're, they're sort of like the, like, uh, sham marriage, like, secret fortune revenge plot is only, it's like the one that the movie kind of ends with, but there's a lot of other plot stuff involving everyone throughout the whole movie. You kind of hit it on the head when you said that it's, like, soapy. Like, there's, like, a lot of... Yeah. Uh, a lot of, um, yeah, just drama Right, happening. there's, like, the, the Siamese twins are both married to different men and so then there's like 
initially this thing of like, oh man, how are they going to make this work? And it, it at the end, it's kind of like, ah, oh, they figured it out. Like, they'll be okay. <laughs> it, it doesn't super resolve. It doesn't but, super uh... resolve. And the one husband still seems like he's probably abusive. But um, for, for, the, for what this movie is going to put into that, I feel like it, it resolves nicely. There is uh, uh, an intersex person who's kind of like half woman, half man. They call they call him in but, the movie. But in in the like, context of the circus, <laughs> split down the middle. Yes, uh, there's someone who uh, was um, known in circus circles, Francis O'Connor, as the uh, the living Venus de Milo. Uh, she had no arms and and was very dexterous with her legs and there is more stuff in this movie uh that um uh such as the living torso or the pin or, or the the pillow man who uh just showing her kind of being very dexterous with her feet and uh, just getting to like yeah watch watch her skill there there's a human skeleton which uh is an extremely skinny guy who i was reading is often they often kind of had uh, arranged within the circus marriages to the fat lady, uh, super skinny guy, fat lady. That sounds um, that sounds circusy. Yeah, uh, there's a bearded lady. Uh, there is uh, cuckoo the bird girl, and then yes, a number of people with uh, microcephaly in that kind of situation, uh, and then some just clowns. Yeah, too. Throw, the, so, yeah. throw some of that in there too. Yeah, there's um. Who's the like normie couple? Um, I forget uh, their names. Frozo and Venus, right? And they're like the clown and the I don't know dancing lady. Yeah. That is freaks. Good movie. Yeah. Or I don't know. I the the way it's edited and it's like so clearly been recut is like hurts it a lot for me. Just in in its current form, you know, like it, right. it feels. It's partially lost you know it feels like it's it does feel like it's missing scenes because it is hmm. i don't know i think it works i like it yeah i think it's i think uh, despite yeah despite the 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 troubles in uh the fi- the final product i think that there are so much kind of interesting ideas in it mm-hmm. and i think a lot of it works very well yeah should we just do something completely different. Hop to the other side of the the world and uh, talk about. Uh, I was born, but sure. Dot dot dot. Uh, our first Yasujiro Ozu film and the first yeah. Ozu movie that I've ever seen. Same. And this is described in the beginning as a picture book for grownups, which I think is very interesting. Okay. Uh, I get that. Yeah. So yeah, this is. Uh, this is a la the lodger like we're kind of like hitting on like oh this is like a famous well-known director Mm -hmm. in the sound era we're actually getting to recognizable yeah kind of pop culture names this is a silent picture it is yes japan was still making silent movies up into the mid 30s a lot of other countries like didn't hop on the the sound bandwagon yeah. as enthusiastically as America. Yeah. Well, I think the, just the, um, like the Hollywood machine was big enough at that point that they could very quickly just like, you know, outfit all the theaters, change their entire like production pipeline, 
within mm-hmm. a few years. Whereas like, yeah, that all that stuff takes a lot of time and money and effort that if, if you have a smaller film economy, it makes sense that it, it would be kind of slower to adapt to sound. Yeah. Also, I think a lot of people reply just like, why? You know, <laughs> like, I'm sure that was probably part of it, too, where filmmakers in, in other countries were just like, no, like, we're not going to put sound in our movies. It's crazy. Um, but I don't know. I found this movie refreshingly kind of low stakes compared to a lot of the other stuff that we've been watching. Yeah, right. Like, after, <laughs> after you know, like, The Mummy and, you know, stuff with, like, murder and, like, massive, just, like, dramatic stakes... This is a movie about, like, a family that moves into a new house. And it's just like, yeah, that's, that's kind of crazy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but it's very yeah. good. Like, I think this movie is great. Um, and, and I think a lot of it, a lot of what I like about it is just that, like, very kind of low stakes, like, relatable stuff where it's just like, it doesn't have to be world ending problems. Sometimes it's just like, I don't want to go to school today. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's not like fantastical Hollywood drama, right? Even it's, this is it, not melodrama, which is yeah. kind of for a lot of early '30s movies are very melodramatic. Yeah, it's it's understated. Yeah, which yeah, which it feels if yeah, it feels very real life, feels very real world. The main things that are that it is about are some kids who are getting bullied by other kids and uh, some kids seeing their uh stern father being a doofus and then losing respect for him <laughs> well it's there's like all of the um there's a lot of parallels between the kid's life at school and dealing with the bullies and the dad's life at his new office job and dealing with like his co-workers and kind of drawing a yeah. lot of parallels between the two mm-hmm. there's a great shot of just like cutting from a bunch of office desks to a bunch of school desks that's like great mm. you know clear uh connection being made there mm-hmm. but yeah i i there's the i also just like the way that the the bullying in this movie is dealt with of just like it's just kids being like little shits they're not like they're not like horribly <laughs> injuring each other they're just like being mean yeah it shows some kind of like very arbitrary meanness and also like right. the sort of eight-year-old bully like power dynamic structures yeah all of the weird like like, social hierarchies which again is like kind of mirrored in like the office social hierarchy stuff yeah i think that's like let there's less focus on the office stuff and that comes in a little later but i do like how it's sort of like kind of building these two like weird sub societies of like the playground children's like all the rules and things they self-imposed rules that they create yeah and then applying those kind of silly rules to like wait like modern adult society also has all these weird arbitrary rules like why do those matter any more or less yeah you know i think you know it calling it a picture book for grown-ups really speaks to a lot of what's going on in the movie and that like the two central characters are children they're probably like eight or something like that and um and so it is looking from their kind of innocent perspective at like kind of Japanese like respect culture mm-hmm. and like honor culture and that kind of thing. Uh, like, um, like politeness. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's something about this movie that is kind of surprisingly 
anti-Confucian, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, I don't really know what that means, but please continue. Confucius is Chinese, uh, but like his his philosophies kind of spread through Asia in a lot of ways. Um, in particular, Confucius was very uh, pro hierarchy and pro respecting hierarchies Mm -hmm. uh where you are a child you respect your parents you're a commoner you respect your you know feudal lord (laughs) or your emperor you are a a worker and you respect your boss yeah this movie is definitely challenging that for sure yeah and it's like aligning a lot of these things and looking at them from this innocent children's perspective and like deconstructing them in many ways yeah uh we can get into like there's a bunch of just like fun kid stuff in this movie um but while we're still on the topic of like it's broader like philosophical stuff i do like the way it kind of uses like kid logic in certain ways or at least like Hmm. it does feel like it's kind of from the kid's perspective through most of it there's a couple interactions between the kids and their dad that are just like just great example of kid logic but also are the sort of thing where i'm like they make a good point. <laughs> like one of them is like, they're like, they come home. They're like, Hey, we're getting, we don't want to go to school. We're getting bullied. And the dad is like, just ignore them. And they're like, they can still beat us up if we ignore them. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, true. Like it's hard to argue with that. And then later when they, you know, they see their dad in a home movie being, being a goofball. And they're like, what the hell? Like we thought you were like a stern, you know, respectable person. Like we don't respect you anymore. <laughs> Look at you, you're making faces over here. And uh, and then like the 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 dad of their bully is their dad's boss. It's not of the bully himself, but like one of the people who one of the sort of like of the, the main bullies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. Right. It's not the main bully. Um. But so that they're like, oh, like he's now like you know, he's in charge of our dad at the office. Like, what's going on there? And so they ask, why is he your boss? And the dad says, well, because he pays me. And the kids are like, well, you should pay him. (laughs) That'll show him. (laughs) Which, yeah, I love that. But yeah, it's like, if that's all you know how the rules work, then it makes perfect sense. And these home movies where they see their dad being a goofball, right? It is specifically like, the dad doesn't want to be a goofball, but he is having to show deference to his boss and the kids recognize what is happening and then lose respect for him. Uh, and earlier in the movie, like in dealing with their bullies and kind of conquering them and becoming the, 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 the rulers of the group, basically, right. um, a la like little Caesar, um, <laughs> they, have come up with their own rules about how like hierarchy should work or be fought for. And, uh, and then they're watching these like socially prescribed rules dominating their dad to the point that he uh, is, (laughs) he's watching the movies and then doing the anime head scratch thing. Uh, which is very interesting seeing that in in, in, live in such an old movie in, mm-hmm. in live action in such an old movie this Japanese gesture of like you're embarrassed so you're scratching the mm. back of your head uh, yeah that that was interesting that was very interesting yeah yeah um, there is yeah like I said earlier like there's a lot of just like fun 
kids being kids stuff mm-hmm. as examples of all of their like hierarchies and rules and things. But like uh, early on, the kids don't want to go to school because they're getting bullied. So they they go and they try to do their homework. Just instead of going to school, they like leave ha- the home and then just don't go to the school. They just go like sit in a field and try to practice their calligraphy um, and then use the, the calligraphy uh, brushes as chopsticks. Um, which to me watching this, I'm like, oh, they're just living the homeschool dream. <laughs> yeah. Like why yeah. go to a school with all of its rules and mean people? Just like go sit outside and do your learning. Like, you know, <laughs> um, and then all the stuff with the sparrow eggs was yes. very amusing. Where they, like, um, they, yeah. for some reason, get the idea that if you eat sparrow eggs, it makes you good at fighting. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I was wondering if that's like some kind of cultural thing that I was missing, but I I love the idea if it's just something that they made up. I got the sense uh, it's something they made up because it's not like it seems like everyone else in the movie is just like, I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Which is great. And then they start using the sparrow eggs as like currency. Yeah, they make make a whole egg economy. (laughs) Nice. Uh, So it's like in addition to all this movie has a lot of like thematically rich stuff to chew on, but then... It's also just like a really kind of like it's just a really like nice movie to watch too. Like it's 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 funny, it's like charming. It is like maybe I was just in the perfect right mood to watch it, but it's like it felt like such a kind of like calming, just like nice movie to sit with. And we're just like, oh, this is like, you know, this is very chill. I'm I'm into this. It's interesting because it's like it is a calming, nice movie, but also there's a lot of just random cruelty in it too. Oh, sure, yeah. They like they feed the sparrow egg to their dog, and then like the dog gets sick. That's upsetting. <laughs> um, I do really like how it ends. Also, um, with the dad, uh, telling the kids, "Don't become miserable apple polishers like me." Which at least that's the English translation, and uh, I don't know. I I really like that sentiment to end on, where the dad is like, "Oh yeah, I can kind of see see myself how my kids see me now." And, like, I don't really like necessarily, like, the person that I've become. And I don't want, I don't want my kids to kind of follow in my footsteps in the same way. Right. Like, he wants them to, um, to, like, fight for themselves in the way that they have learned how to. And, like, yeah. stick up for themselves in the way that he cannot. Yeah. Or he doesn't feel like he can. To not be as, like, deferential as he has kind of lived his life. Um, and they're like, yeah, we get it. Yeah. And then the, ki- the, the kids are like, yeah, my plan is to be a general and my plan is to be like the president. <laughs> like they, they both have like the most like wildly ambitious career plans. Um, and it's like good for them. This movie, um, I guess there is something that is called the tatami shot, which is sort of an Ozu trademark, which is putting the camera down very, very low like lower than eye level on a tatami mat and then and then just like shooting these scenes from i mean almost like a child's angle but mm. but this all this like very dispassionate low angle in a lot of ways and so there are a lot of there's a lot of like visual style and imagery that it's difficult for me to disentangle whether it is highly influential in japanese movies and anime mm. or if it is just like just a, a good example of it kind of yeah or mm. or at least like you know if you're composing shots with 
the Japanese tables that you sit at and paper doors and tatami mats. Like, is this just kind of how you compose these shots? Yeah. Or, um, like how much of this is like informed by like what he is shooting and how much of this is like, Oh, Ozu invented the way that Japanese people shoot movies. Basically. I mean, I, I think that is at least partially true. Like I know that Ozu is like an incredibly influential filmmaker. I don't know, like, to what exact degree that is of, like, how much, like, his visual style has just, like, informed an entire country's, you know, visual media. But, um... I'm, yeah, the I last think, Japanese I, movie we watched was A Touch of Madness, which is very different from this. Right, yeah. And I, I it does almost feel like, um, this movie does have a sort of, like, a, a noticeably kind of, like, Japanese visual style. If that yeah. can be... you know put into a single thing but i i I think there's like certain there's certain like visual trademarks that i don't know if i could point them out but it does have a kind of cumulative effect it feels japanese outside of the context of the stuff that you're looking at right and yeah it's because i i was thinking watching it that a lot of that had more to do with like architecture and like you know the way that houses are are set up and that kind of thing but I do feel like there is probably some amount of just like visual style that has uh, either was this movie is just part of a greater movement or quite possibly it's also just like a specific Ozu influence. I was noticing also that like uh, a lot of these shots have a lot of depth in them. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. They, they. Yeah. A lot of like extreme background foreground stuff. Yeah, and like deep and, but, focus and things, and 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 like you know, a lot of this is shot in these like places with paper doors where you're kind of like looking from one room into another room, and then there's another room past mm-hmm. it. And so, like, even if it's not using all of the depth, it kind of feels very like full in its z-axis, mm-hmm. which uh, a lot of times, a lot of American movies kind of just feel like a plane in front of you compared to this. Yeah, for sure. Um, One of my big complaints about a lot of American movies from this era is how, yeah, how like kind of flat they feel. Um, Speaking of American movies, uh, having to do with ambition. Yeah. Uh, Having to do with, uh, with, violently overthrowing <laughs> your uh yeah. the, the person who is in charge of you <laughs> yeah let's talk about uh scarface original yeah. scarface this is uh i feel like scar 80s scarface is one of those movies that i think i don't know i feel like a lot of people don't know that it's a remake or don't think of it as such mm-hmm. like a lot of 80s remakes like the fly or the thing that it's like the remake is so much more famous and well known than the original that it has kind of like supplanted it in culture right and having seen neither of them before this i was i kind of just watched this as a movie and it didn't but similar to the mummy there was like kind of more things even though i haven't seen that the de palma scarface there's like more scarface stuff in this than i thought there would be there's a guy with a scar on his face first off sure yeah but even beyond that there was like you know (laughs) there's more to it i thought that that would be it i thought that would be like the only you know it's like it's about a guy who's a criminal but there is more yeah, I don't really know pretty much anything at all about the 80s Scarface. Um, so I was also watching this without too much of that yeah. context. I mean, and they're, um, they're both based on a book. So 
I think the 80s one takes a lot of stuff in the book that it wasn't used in this movie. So, hmm. But this is about a guy named uh, Tony... Camanti. Tony, Tony Camanti, who is a thinly veiled Al Capone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Down to having the nickname Scarface, which is yes. comes from Capone. Um, and this is, a, this is a Howard Hawks picture. I think the first Howard Hawks movie that we've watched. Uh, I believe so. Yes. Um, and this is also produced by Howard Hughes. This is kind of the other one of the other big Howard Hughes pictures. Yeah, and Howard Hughes like making these movies that uh, really push boundaries. Right. But this is one of the more extreme yeah. uh, pre-code movies that well, we've that's seen. Like Hell's Angels is a like cranked up schlocky version of Wings. Mm-hmm. This is like a cranked up schlocky version of a different William Willowman movie, Public Enemy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. This This is like... It's got it's got like a lot of striking violence in it, mm-hmm. yeah, um, including like stuff that they were like, we are going to show this, but we're just going to show the uh, the shadows doing this so that we can get away with even more violence, basically. Right, but I, I feel like the other uh, um, gangster movies that we watched last episode. We're like mm-hmm. had a lot of they have a lot of murder in them, but they're like very artfully presented where it's like it's happening off screen or like we just see the aftermath of it or yeah. what have you. Whereas this movie is like, no, no, we're going to show you so many people getting shot by Tommy guns that you'll be sick of it by the end. This movie is like gritty. It's it's uh, yeah. it, it like you feel kind of on edge watching this movie, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, I, I found it very effective. Um and like it's a little there are aspects of it that are fairly cliche, you know, but like uh I think that like there's this tension that goes through the whole movie that comes from the kind of extremity of it. Mm-hmm. Uh which yeah, I found I found very very affecting. Yeah. Howard Hughes did hire Howard Hawks to direct this movie even after Howard Hawks had previously sued him because Howard Hawks had directed a movie called The Dawn Patrol. Mm. Um, oh no, sorry. Howard Hughes sued Howard Hawks because Howard Hawks made a movie called The Dawn Patrol, which Hughes said was a ripoff of, Hel- of Hell's Angels, which is pretty rich because Hell's Angels is very much a ripoff of Wings. <laughs> a lot of Howards uh, yeah. you know, throwing shade around. Um, too many old-timey... Yeah, too many old-timey... First names. Yeah. And yeah, this is kind of loosely based on a novel that itself was kind of loosely based on Al Capone. Um, In the book, it follows Tony and his brother, who's a cop, and like both of their kind of like rise to powers in their respective, you know, groups. Hmm. Um, It cuts out all that out. But um, according to the screenwriter, Ben Hecht, uh, Capone sent some some hatchet men to his house in L.A. to make sure the movie wasn't based on him, which I find very that might be not be true. That's just a thing that he said. But um, that also sounds like something Al Capone would do. So this movie is definitely um, it, it has an interesting relationship with gangsters as a film. Mm. Uh, it opens with some text that is. <laughs> is quite a thing uh it 
uh, it says, this picture is an indictment of gang rule in America and of the callous indifference of the government to this constantly increasing menace to our safety and our liberty. Every incident in this picture is a reproduction of an actual occurrence, and the purpose of this picture is to demand of the government, what are you going to do about it? The government is your government. What are you going to do about it? Uh, Pointing the which, finger right at the audience. Yeah, which, you know, it 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 it, it, it feels like... Very much like it's trying to have its cake and eat it, too. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was the thing that was added late to be like, we got to have something in here just to be like, don't actually be a gangster, please. This is bad. Right. Like, this movie is very, I I think, even more than Public Enemy and Little Caesar, it is glorifying gangsters. It is saying they are cool guys (laughs) who have fun and do cool stuff. I mean, I, I think it, it has a very, it has kind of a less kind of, um, it has a similar structure to those movies and that it is a kind of like rise and fall of this guy, right? Like he's like moving up through the ranks and then he like takes over and then things end horribly for him. Um, it's got a lot of similar plot beats to yeah, both of those movies. But it, it is, it's more, it feels schlockier than those two for sure. It feels kind of more overblown and pulpy and it's like way more violent and way more kind of um, romantic in the sort of old timey sense of the word. Or um, it feels like it's kind of fetishizing gangsters a bit more than these movies were. Yeah. And, you know, along the lines of the opening, which does feel like it is at odds with the rest of the movie, Mm -hmm. there is a really random scene in the middle of the movie where oh yeah that uh, was definitely added late i read that like oh really yeah they like went back and shot that after the rest of the thing and be like no howard hughes you have to put something in there to be like you know saying that this is bad which yeah that's the thing is it's like this crawl at the beat not it's not crawl but like these titles the beginning Mm -hmm. of the movie and that scene in the middle of the movie very much feel like uh, uh, they are not the same as the rest of the movie. Right. Yeah. Uh, which they aren't, right? Because uh, the rest of the movie is like, this is a cool guy and being a gangster is fun. And <laughs> and then this stuff is, being a gangster is bad. What are you going to do about yeah. it? But um, yeah, there's a scene in the middle of the movie where uh, there are some politicians who are telling the journalists, this is like very, very meta-textually commenting yeah. on the movie itself. No there characters are... from the rest of the movie, and none of these characters appear in any of their scenes. It's like completely yeah. it's its own thing. Yeah. So ridiculous. There there are some like politically influencing people talking to a journalist, and they're saying that uh that they're glorifying the gangster by giving him all of this publicity. And the journalist says, you think you can get rid of the gangster by ignoring him, keeping him off the front page? You're playing right into his hands. Citation needed. Uh, (laughs) Show him up, run him out of the country. That'll keep him out of the front page. Uh, And he's like talking. He's like literally addressing the camera when he says this. Like, like the people are behind the camera and he looks right into the lens when he is like giving. He's saying it's okay for me, the journalist, to mm-hmm. do all of this stuff that is depicting gangsters being cool, aka me, the director, do all of this stuff depicting gangsters being cool, uh, because uh, p- 
pe- people should be catching them and deporting them <laughs> is, is specifically what they're saying. Literally, they say, like, put teeth in the Deportation Act. Uh, and, like, these gangsters don't belong in this country. Half of them aren't even citizens. Uh, so, like, yeah, very much like we're going to keep making a movie that is glorifying gangsters. And if you care about this, then deport Italians and pass a law quote that puts the gun in the same class as drugs and white slavery. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think about like the context this movie came out in a bit. Like, I think that scene is garbage, but um, I guess 32 was like kind of prime, like, gangster violence in america because like prohibition era gangster violence i mean where it was like yeah that's like when like a lot of or i guess it was more like late 20s into early 30s but so yeah i'm i guess i'm i'm curious how much this felt like this was like a very relevant pressing issue for for most of the audience for this movie where it did really feel like they had to kind of like take a stance like that on it I don't like this movie does not care about that's issues, the thing like the movie the itself thing. doesn't the movie itself is so just like popcorn like look at this guy you know do crazy stuff yeah so yeah I mean I think this this movie is honestly like so I I, I get a lot of flack for this criticism that I have of Martin Scorsese a lot of the time which is that uh his movies do this a bit Sometimes they are, they are more nuanced than this movie, certainly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that people are dumb and they watch Scorsese movies and they go, Oh, cool guy, you know? Well, I think, and yeah, it's true. And I I think it's funny to watch recent Scorsese movies, Killers of the Flower Moon included within that, where it feels like he, Scorsese also knows that and is like going out of his way to be like, no. They are not cool. They're shitty. <laughs> Do not think these people are cool. Right. Because um, that's like the whole point of The Irishman is like three and a half hours of like, this guy is miserable. He is a, an empty, hollow shell of a man because of the choices <laughs> he has made. And uh, a thing that Colors of the Flower Moon does that this movie also does kind of maybe less knowingly is its its main character is kind of a an idiot. Mm-hmm. Is like just a big dumb guy who is like can only kind of understand like money and like like material objects as as value. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, because I I mean that's my impression of actual Al Capone was like he wasn't like a smart guy. He was like kind of dumb, but people did what he told them to do. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> so he ended up. With a lot of money and influence. But Tony in this movie is like not not presented as like a sharp a sharp guy. You know? I mean, I don't know like, if he's specifically presented as a dumb guy, but I kind of took uh, it that way. Like he's presented as just like, hey, I'm a I'm I'm a gangster guy. I wanna shoot guns. And it's like, alright, cool, man. Um <laughs> like I, I feel like both Little Caesar and whoever the public enemies character his name was um both those characters feel like they have like real intent behind everything they do and they're like really trying to like plan out their like ascent through uh through like organized crime 
Mm-hmm. Whereas Tony is just kind of murdering everyone around him until he gets promoted. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's more vibes. Yeah. <laughs> less, uh, less thought. I will say, I think like we're, we're like, we're talking pretty negatively about this movie as like this kind of like schlocky, not well thought out thing. It's, but it has some amazing scenes in it. Like, yeah, the opening scene for one is like incredible. Well, what do you what what opening? The scene? whole like long wonder going through the like aftermath of the party with all the streamers, and then you see the guy oh, walking yeah, in, yeah. and you see the shadow come in and shoot him. It's all one this shot. movie. This Great. movie is so stylish. Yeah, I I like I, it's honestly like one of the best looking movies of the sound era Probably. that we've seen so yeah. far. There, like, there's a part which I thought was so inspired, uh, where they're doing the kind of like tearing the calendar pages off thing yes. to show time moving, but they do it by like having like a gun superimposed off it, so like a machine gun. So yeah, with so every shot, like a new page tears yeah, off. It's it's a, a double exposure of a Tommy gun shooting, and then like a bunch of pages coming off the calendar. It's so good. <laughs> It is, uh, I was just talking about that shot with another friend of mine who was like, I was saying, I'm going to watch Scarface soon. And I was like, look, there's a calendar bit in that that is great. <laughs> and so like when that <laughs> happened, I was like, oh, yes, there it is. It's so good. But it's it's not even just that. It's like the camera moves around in this a lot more yeah. than yeah. Uh, than other stuff we've seen of this era. I feel like this, to me, honestly, feels like the first uh the first sound movie that has felt like it is completely unencumbered by sound technology. Yeah. Uh, like they are just making a movie mm-hmm. and and they are doing a good job with it. They're they're making yeah. very good choices, like filmmaking wise, I think. Another thing that I noticed with this uh is that it has a lot of a more modern amount of like chest up medium shots in it. Mm. Uh, and it got me thinking about like the sort of differences in demands of the silent medium and the sound medium and how in the sound medium, most of the emoting and acting is happening with the face and the hands, right? Mm. Where in silent acting like you're using the whole body a lot more which kind of explains a lot more of those like much more pulled back shots in in a lot of silent movies and this one has made the choice correctly i think to bring the camera in closer to because more of the acting is just happening with words and 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 faces faces Yeah. yeah um also you can get a microphone closer to actors that way um that might have been yeah part of it too uh but yeah that's that's a really that's a that's a i hadn't noticed that specifically but now that you say it i'm like well yeah of course like right yeah yeah i think both this and the mummy feel like they feel kind of a a a notch ahead of the other talkies in terms of like the tools that they're using and like how well they're kind of incorporating all the techniques that have existed so far Mm -hmm. we get like a rear projection car part uh car driving part fun yeah, we get like the camera moving in some cool ways. Like there, there are some shots 
of, uh, you know, that are made to hide more violence than they want. The, these, you know, people getting, uh, lined up and lined up against a wall and shot, right. uh, in silhouette. But like, also it's just cool, you yeah. know, Which <laughs> like is it's not even a, just like an exact recreation of the St. Valentine's day massacre. Which Al Capone mm. really did, like mastermind. So that's a, that's a real kind of like pull from the headlines moment because I think that happened in like twenty nine. It was in our news segment. Uh-huh. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> another thing in that scene, and in I think not every scene where someone is killed, but almost every scene, there is an X somewhere in the frame. Mm. Like somewhere there is an X, and at a certain point, I started to notice that of like, oh, there's always an X, like either an X like built into the set or like kind of lit on a wall somewhere. Wow. Yeah. Um, and at first I was like, Oh, okay. That's like a, a, a fun little flourish or whatever. Like there's always an X when death happens. But then as the movie continues and like, as it gets towards the end, you, I started seeing X's built into stuff and being like, Oh shit. Oh shit. Someone's going to die soon. Wow. Even if, oh, that's even so if they cool. didn't in the same scene, like they started that then starts to like use that familiarity to like build anticipation to be like, oh shit, I just saw an X on screen. I know someone's gonna die soon. That's rad. Yeah. yeah, I mean that 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 that's that is what I'm talking about. Like you know, thematically maybe, uh or or like response responsibility to society wise, <laughs> this movie is maybe not so well thought out. <laughs> but like as a movie, it is so well put together. Howard I Hawks, think. good director. Like <laughs> it's it's kind of wild the amount of um like more recent directors that I think are kind of uh probably more well known than than Howard Hawks that like cite him specifically as like the entire reason they wanted to make movies. Hmm. Um John Carpenter especially is like he he always goes back to this like I just wanted to make Howard Hawks stuff. Like that's that was like his biggest inspiration as a filmmaker hmm. um which is i don't know it's and it's cool now to like watch howard hawks movies and see what inspired so many other people and it's like yeah he's good at it yeah this is another movie with boris karloff in it yes uh, uh boris karloff plays talk the... in this one <laughs> like, yeah he, he talks it... in the mummy too you get to hear like his I don't know if he's trying to do an American accent and somewhat failing. I don't think he is in either uh, one of these. No, yeah, he's 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 doing Boris Karloff voice. Yeah, which is uh, English. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, so he's a kind of British-ish uh, rival gangster who controls the North Side, uh, and there's all this back and forth about like, don't go into the North Side. We gotta wait for our moment, and then he says, "I'm Scarface. I'm gonna go into the North Side." Yeah. Uh, but like another like amazingly stylish bit is while uh while Tony is taking over uh he in his sort of crowning moment of taking the entire city he kills Boris Karloff and uh while while he's bowling and so he like rolls the ball and then gets shot right as the ball leaves uh. his leaves his hand. And so you see him bowl a strike, but there's one last pin that's like <laughs> wavering and then falls down as he dies. So cool. Yeah. So stylish. Yeah. So cool. 
unbelievable. <laughs> Another a funny thing about Boris Karlov in this movie is that on the poster for this movie, he's credited as Boris Frankenstein Karlov. <laughs> <laughs> like, that movie was so famous, even a year after it came out, that uh, Boris Karlov was straight up getting credited as Frankenstein in other movies. <laughs> wow. I... <laughs> and not even Frankenstein's monster, too. Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> I did not look that closely at the poster, and that's hilarious. <laughs> Stylish, fun movie. Very influential, for sure. Right, the 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 phrase, the world is yours, I know, is a thing that carries over into the remake. Hmm, um, yeah. And that's a, that's a big deal in this one. Um, there's sort of a, an, a thing that reminded me of M, also. There's, like, during that opening one-er shot of murder, you hear whistling, and then later on you see... It's always kind of a mystery, like, who did that at the beginning. It's like, it's probably the main character, right? And then later, he's he whistles the same tune, kind of revealing to the audience that, yeah, same mm, guy. Very, very well put together movie. Speaking of good movies, good, I thought, good transition. anyway, yeah. we have Dorothy Arzner's Merrily We Go to Hell. Maybe the best movie title ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's up there. I don't... I don't know how well it pays off on the title, really, but uh, uh, I, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this movie. See, I thought the title was just gonna, was just going to be a fun title and not really have anything to do with the movie, and I actually think it's it's a it's a very apt title, right? Um, and it's it's said repeatedly throughout the movie, also. Yeah, it is. Uh, it it's the catchphrase of uh, yeah a, a guy who is watching himself. Descend into alcoholism. <laughs> I had heard of this movie, mostly just like looking up Dorothy Arzner's filmography, and it always stood out of like that's a hell of a title. Gotta check that one out. Mm-hmm. And I went into it not knowing anything about it, and was very uh, pleasantly surprised by this movie. I think this movie is very good. Yeah, and is very. Uh, it feels very unusual for this era, too, and sort of, like, kind of like Freaks and sort of, like, how nuanced it is and how, like, unwilling to just, like, kind of take the easy route and, like, the easy melodramatic way of doing things. Hmm. Because um, I feel like we've seen a lot of movies about, like, either, like, marital strife or alcoholism or a lot of the kind of, like, thematic th- things in this movie. Infidelity, whatever it may be. And this movie, I feel like, handles all of them with so much more, like, maturity than anything else we've seen for this show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this movie is... Um, also, and it's also, like... Great talk, like, like, great dialogue in this movie. Yes, yeah. It, it deals with a lot of um, uh, surprisingly progressive, like, ideas. Yeah. Including, like, yeah... A, a, a modern marriage, uh, what they call, yeah. which uh, an open, uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as as one might say today. But yeah, it, it portrays so much of this stuff with like nuance, like like people kind of trapped in in shitty relationships, uh, uh, people who like want to see the best in other people, um, and and get let down, yeah, and then yeah, just like kind of like watching a dynamic get like more and more toxic despite all like Ugh. warning signs. Oh, this movie's good. Um so yeah, the the broad strokes of this movie is about Jerry, a penniless uh reporter 
a writer. He wants to be a playwright, but he works at a newspaper. And Joan, a, a wealthy heiress. Very great opening shot also, like going through miniatures and like combining miniatures yeah, with moving yeah. camera stuff. And it's like they meet at a party. They're like they're both out on a balcony to like escape the party kind of, which is like that. I find that very relatable. <laughs> and they're both a little tipsy, especially Jerry, but really kind of hit it off and have some some good some good banter. Yeah, I wrote um, this is that early that good early 30s dialogue. Yes. Oh, <laughs> this is like peak early 30s dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Um this is a great line where Jen says, "You mean of course alcoholically speaking." Which uh I'm going to steal that. I also I also wrote down good dialogue question mark. Um <laughs> Like this is new. And uh, yeah, the, the title is, is Jerry's Toast. Like whenever he's drinking, that's how he toasts. He goes, Marley, we go to hell. And then he, you know, downs something. But so they, they hit it off at this thing. And, and uh, the the sort of early section of the movie is kind of a like lighthearted romantic comedy of them two, mm-hmm. like getting to know each other and like trying to, to meet each other, but like nearly missing or this and that. But it's like, it's it all feels very kind of like light and, uh, and cheery and charming yeah um there's a really great bit where they're they're kissing in a car but whenever they kiss they lean on the horn so the horn goes off um (laughs) just like really good uh good little florists like that yeah and along the lines of it being a romantic comedy uh you know her rich dad doesn't want her to be with him. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's, it's a writer. Uh, How dare you? <laughs> he hasn't made a play yet. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and so it's kind of like, I, I want to do what I want, dad. Yeah. I love him. You know, but the movie does such a good job of like really selling you on this romantic pairing. Like they're, they, they're so charming together. They have such good chemistry. Like, I felt so immediately like invested in this of like, I really want to see these people happy. Like they clearly make each other very happy. And like, I want to see this, you know, work out. But it also does a really great job of like planting the seeds. Yeah. Seeding all of the ways in which it won't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Jerry's very much a like four drinks. I'm having fun and I'm doing great guy and then five drinks i am a complete wreck (laughs) yeah asleep and don't remember anything but which yeah is like a thing throughout this whole movie is that like jerry is alcoholic and like he misses they get engaged to be married he misses his own engagement party because he he like passes out in the back of a car and it's like throughout the whole movie that's like a thing where it's like he's gonna drink and he's gonna you know but it's i like how He's not, like, an abusive drunk. I guess he might be kind of, like, emotionally abusive in certain ways. But, like, Mm -hmm. I like how this movie doesn't treat his alcoholism as this thing where, like, he, like, flies off the handle and, like, breaks furniture and shit. Not that, like, those alcoholics do certainly exist. But I like how this movie is is more focused on, like, he's just kind of embarrassing and, like, a bummer. Right. And he's, he's like, self-destructive in many ways. Right, yeah. It's like, yeah, he's more self-sabotaging in his alcoholism than he is, like, outwardly destructive. He also uh, reveals that he is hung up on his ex. Right. Which is, like, right from the get-go, you're like, he is very hung up on this person. (laughs) You keep a picture of her on your wall? Yeah. 
yeah, he talk he he talks to the picture and 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 talks about and gets real dramatic. Talks about opening his veins and carrying his blood away in a golden bowl. Yeah, yeah, as you, normal uh, normal stuff. Um, <laughs> another sort of like sign that this his alcoholism might be a problem is uh, it during his wedding he forgets the ring and has to use a corkscrew as a ring, which he like holds up like it's a ring, but then. Once it's on her finger, it's revealed that it's actually like his pocket corkscrew, which is a great reveal yeah. and like really great, yeah, character moment. It's simultaneously like a funny kind of like, uh, like screwball comedy moment, and also this this thing where like, especially later on in the movie, you're like, oh no, like this is such a, like it almost takes on a darker note the further into the movie it gets, and you kind of like see the yeah. depths of like how much of this is a problem for him. Yeah, that's almost like that to me. That felt like the moment where it stopped being cute and started being like, "Oh, yeah, uh, right." Hmm. <laughs> uh, but so then, like, flash forward ahead into their their marriage, and the, um, he's trying to sell. He's trying to be a playwright and sell plays, and he gets a letter back that says, uh, "As as it says on screen, while we think your play shows promise, we do not think it's sufficiently interesting to warrant our producing it." Which is uh, a very politely worded, but also, like, very mean letter. <laughs> uh, he got another one that says, we see no merit in your script. Yeah. So. We do not think it's sufficiently interesting, I think is very funny. <laughs> um, and also, there's there's a great bit during this section where you you hear the sound of either typing or cocktail shaking. And it's, like, not clear at first which it is. Which I think hmm. is a, a really cool sort of use of sound. Hmm. I didn't notice that. That's awesome. I forget which it's then revealed to be, but it's it's that sort of thing where I'm like, wait, is he shaking? I think it's like you think he's typing, but he's actually ha- shaking your drink. And yeah, there's just like they they're having a big dinner, but like Jerry ruins dinner because he like drops the chicken on the ground. So then they have to make canned chicken, which I guess was a thing in the 30s. <laughs> But then he gets he gets his play produced. He gets an acceptance letter. Like, we're making your play in New York. The rest of this movie, movie has taken place in Chicago. But so they move to New York. Like, hey, we got this. We've, we've learned earlier that his ex uh, was an actor. And then they, like, go to New York. And, like, we found this great, this great hot actor to be in your play. And then who walks Ooh. in? I wrote, oh, oh shit, boy. in my notes. <laughs> like, in that moment. His ex, Claire... Um, who like immediately is like trying to seduce him back, kind of. Um, and it's like, oof, yikes! This is this is an awkward, bad situation. And you can tell that like because he is so uh, not only so hung up on her, but so unable to control his drinking that like, well, he a... for a while he quits drinking, right? Like, right. for a while he's he's on, as they say, the water wagon. Which I'm like, is that what the wagon is? It's the water wagon. Oh, huh. I'd never heard the full phrase before, but I guess that's what that means. Um, but then, yeah, like, once he starts hanging out with Claire, working on the play again, he, like, immediately starts drinking. There's even a scene where she, like, offers him a drink, and he's like, no, 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 I'm like, I'm not, I'm not drinking right now. And then she's like, here, just hold this for a second. And just, like, puts it in his hand, and he just, like, slowly starts, like, it's, like, moving it towards his face until eventually he's just drinking it. Great. Uh, blocking there um Hmm. but uh yeah there's there's a bit where they're like uh joan and jerry are are like 
getting in bed together or like, you know, having a sort of nice quiet moment and he he accidentally calls her Claire because he's drunk. And it's like, ah, <laughs> like I was, Juicy. I was so invested in the beginning that now when it's like the, the cracks are starting to form and like there's real tension, it's like, it's so palpable. I, I do feel like um, this and the college party are both movies that you can tell, like have a woman's touch in a way. Yeah. This uh, I think even more so than wild party. Oh yeah, the wild party. Sorry, um, uh, where I think, and especially like a like a a, a lesbian making this right, <laughs> like like it is, uh, you know, she's got to make movies about straight people because it's nineteen thirty two, mm-hmm. but like there there is a, a sort of like disillusionment with traditional straight relationships that this movie has, yeah, uh, and sort of a. You know, this movie is maybe a little less outwardly negative toward the like the toward men than um, than the Wild Party, uh, where they're all just horrific people. But like this one's like men are subtly disappointing, <laughs> <laughs> right? But it's like even that feels like right because Wild Party is like men are either just like lecherous monsters or just kind of jerks. Right. Yeah. There's like the professor who's like kind of treated as right. He's like the male romantic lead. He's just kind of he's bland. Right. Yeah. He's just, you know, getting shot in the shoulder and things and shrugging it off. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like how much the ways in which kind of like Jerry is flawed are very. um, Yeah, they're, they're just more subtle about it. They're not like he's not like an awful guy. Like his alcoholism isn't like that destructive it's just like oh god damn it jerry like again you know it's always like both the characters and the audience have like just feel disappointed in him more yeah. than anything in many ways it resists cliche this yeah movie. yeah um but so at a certain point it's like very clear that he is carrying carrying on an affair with claire behind joan's back and joan's like i know what's up like and so she's like all right, fine. If that's how you want to play this, great. We'll have an open marriage, and I'm going to go hang out with Cary Grant for the evening. <laughs> and then Cary Grant is in one scene, just being handsome. <laughs> and it's a very it, it at this point it feels very uh, Lindsay and Tobias Bluth, uh, right? But <laughs> just it like, might work who can... for us. <laughs> <laughs> like trying to one up with up uh, one up each other with right. like the hottest other person yeah. they can find. But yeah. then it's like it's it's like very clear very early that joan doesn't actually enjoy that like she's kind of doing it to get back at jerry but she doesn't actually like want to date other people Mm -hmm. she's basically just doing it to piss him off there's some like kind of fun party scenes in here uh where there's a bunch of wealthy people in tuxedos at like you know a typical 30s streamer party um with just you know ticker tape everywhere and someone says what depression which is (laughs) like for a movie made in 1932, it's like, damn, that is a topical and also, like, kind of dark joke to, like, show, right. like, rich people partying and be like, depression? What depression? Who cares? Yeah, and then and then someone says, the very charming depression between your shoulder blades, my dear. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Which is, again, good dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
yeah, there's like, there's so much tension in these scenes, especially like when there's like so much unsaid between Jerry and Joan in a lot of yeah. this stuff. We're like, yeah. you want to just shake one or or both of them and just be like, just like talk to each other. Like just actually express your feelings to one another. But, um, but they don't do that. Yeah, specifically, it becomes this kind of the thing that, like, Jerry never says, I love you to Joan. Right, he always says, I think you're swell, which is no Ah, substitute, you know? It's like, it's charming when they meet, but at at a certain point, she's like, you've never said that to me, not once. And, and like, and, like, he says it to deflect so much stuff, right? Right, yeah. Uh, like... Where there's a point where she confronts him and she's like, do not tell me that I'm swell, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, like, it reaches a head where they, like, have a big argument. After, like, he, like, has brought Claire home to their apartment and is, like, partying in the kitchen and, like, making out with her in front of Joan. And she's just like, fuck this, I'm leaving. Like, I'm going back to Chicago. Like, I'm you can deal with this shit on your own. Yeah. Um, And so he... His play then, like, falls apart, and he has to go back to his job at, at the newspaper. And he's, uh, he's like, sending letters to Joan to try to apologize and all this stuff. And they keep getting sent back. Return to sender. Yeah. Until eventually he finds out from the newspaper who works at that uh, she has uh, given birth to a baby boy. So then he rushes to the hospital to meet her, only to find out that the baby has died. Which is, like, that one-two punch is, like, such an emotional whirlwind of, like... Yeah. Oh, shit, like, they had a child together, that's a big deal, and then he gets there, and the kid is dead. That's that Hollywood melodrama, right. baby. That's, but that's, like, the only... I, I think that it works as well as it does because the movie has, like, so far been very kind of, like, restrained in its in its drama, and much more about these sort of, like, slowly building tension and, like, resentments and sort of things that when it it leans full melodrama it's like it really feels shocking and and the person who tells him that the baby died is her dad who um is the one we find out has been sending sending the letters back yeah it turns out that like she wanted she was uh you know she was really ill uh during the pregnancy and uh or during the delivery and all of that and um she was calling out, like, wanting to see Jerry again. And her dad was deliberately keeping the two of them apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually Jerry kind of realizes what's happening and just, like, pushes the dad aside. Yeah. And There's another they... good example of, like, subtlety, though. There's a line the dad says where, while she's in the hospital, he tells Jerry, if she dies, I'll kill you. But he doesn't say it like, if she dies, I'll kill you. Like, he says it, like, so quietly and understated where I'm like, I believe right. him. Like, yeah. that guy is, would do it. Um, <laughs> which, I got money. I'll disappear you. Which feels like in, like, I don't know, having seen a number of other 1930s movies, I would think that that line would be delivered with, like, a lot of gusto and, like, drama. And it's, like, mm. very quiet and very understated. Because um, he, like, absolutely hates Jerry yeah. at this point. Which, I mean, like, he's not entirely uh, out of line for, for disliking this guy at this point. Yeah. Um, but the power of love. Yeah. But so, yeah, Jerry pushes through the dad and, like, goes in. Um, and Jonas there. And he, he finally says, I love you to her. 
but it it does end on kind of a moment of like like happy reconciliation and reunion but at the same time there's like a little bit of like graduate style like unease to the last scene too mhm hmm. like like they they kind of reconnect but at the same time it's like i don't know like there's still i i don't see just like shun- sunshine ahead for these two like <laughs> you know they they both have like this relationship has a lot of issues to work out still i mean that that uh that unease that you're speaking of is the unease that i felt watching sunrise uh, uh yeah the the reconciliation yeah. <laughs> there and, uh, but and also it just... has no attempted murder in it <laughs> uh but yeah this another kind of thing adding to the scene is just like you know it's happy but also a baby just died too yeah so and it like it kind of sits in that too where it's like this is still yeah. a pretty sad ending yeah despite it's ending with like our characters saying i love you to each other it's still like they but they're they're kind of saying it with like tears in their eyes a bit right um, so it's sort of like happy ending question mark um which even that feels like uh, an unusually kind of nuanced way to end a movie. Yeah. For for this time period, anyway. I think I'm being very harsh on 1932 as a time period for movies, but <laughs> hey, you know. Uh, well, and it's the end of the movie, and guess what? It's the end of our podcast. That's right. Uh, uh, did you have a favorite film that we watched? My favorite movie was Scarface. Yeah. I thought Scarface was so fun, so cool. I think it is the best movie. Uh, it's 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 not the smartest movie, but it's the best. I movie. think I think you should put up a big poster of 1932 Scarface on your wall just to be a, a contrarian, a contrarian old oh movie. Oh my nerd. god, that that's a good bit. And then you that's can look bit. at then you can look at uh, Boris Karlov's Frankenstein credit. All the live long day. Maybe I should like make it that black and white poster, but make it, uh, but Tony, the old one. Yeah, that would be. Does that exist? Someone's done that for sure. Um, we don't have. There's no fans of this movie. It's all. It's yeah. all Tony Montana. Yeah. I I fully expected the Mummy to be my favorite movie this year, but Merrily Go to Hell really surprised me and how much I liked it. Like I really liked that movie a lot. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's my favorite. Nice. Well, that'll be it for this episode. Uh, might be another little while before the next one because of the yeah. Denver Film Festival, but uh, we'll be back at it as soon as but possible. Next episode, we got some real doozies. Next episode, no effort needed for the album art uh, because <laughs> just our uh, original show uh, yeah. artwork. Yeah, just just a a a photograph of a frame of King Kong that I took. Yeah, yeah, can, right. Uh, we don't have to edit use. it at all. We don't have yeah. to insert a frame from anything. It'd be funny to just put a different frame from King Kong in there. No, <laughs> but also you picked like the I've been, most, wait, I've been the waiting most for this iconic moment. frame possible, pretty much. Like I don't think there's a better choice anyway. So, um, but yeah, applied to Invisible Man, some other stuff. Thirty three is a good good year for movies. So yeah, yeah, a uh, lot of lot of interesting stuff coming up next next episode. So make sure you catch us then. Follow us on instagram and stuff uh and um subscribe you know yeah, subscribe. if you've watched subscribe subscribe like 
do all those things you know engage engage with the media that <laughs> our you're, content that you're consuming <laughs> don't call it that it's a podcast all right we have words for these things already <sighs> yes anyway um thank you for enjoying our content <laughs> god damn it and uh, uh that'll be it logging off <laughs> is that the new sign off uh That'll be it for this one. Uh, excited for 1933. Thanks for listening to 1932. Uh, appreciate you all. Glenn, I'll see you next year. See you next year. You know, they buried everything with them that they used in life. Well, when we came to unwrap the girl herself... How could you do that? Had to. Science, you know. <laughs>